0: Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening. You are listening to The Shift. I am your host, Doug McKenty. Uh, this is episode 19 of The Shift. It's being recorded on November 18th, 2017. If you like what you're listening to, please think about uh, helping us out on Patreon. Our Patreon page is patreon.com/the shift. Uh, if you want to find out more information, go to my Facebook page at The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at D McKenty. Or check out my website for archives and other information at www.theshiftnow.com. My guest on the show today is Stephen Hummel, host of WisdomicsBlog.com and author of the book Money and Wisdom, The Way Out, The Way Home. Stephen proposes a radical way of perceiving finance that goes beyond the concept of universal basic income into the realm of wisdomics, the synthesis of currency and market policy with a higher order understanding that human wisdom is the resource most capable of propelling mankind on a path toward freedom and prosperity. Based on modern monetary theory and an extension of C.H. Douglas's theory on social credit, wisdomics invites us to transform our financial paradigm from the current debt-based system of enforced scarcity to a system which minimizes debt and provides abundance for all. While it is difficult to imagine that such a system is possible, Stephen outlines how a few simple economic policies could transform our system into one that provides just such abundance for everyone. The hard part is creating the paradigm shift that would make it possible. Thanks, Stephen, for being on the program, and thank you so much for helping to make the shift. How are you
1: doing today? Very good, and boy... that was such an excellent exposition that, uh, you know, that's, that's very good. I appreciate that. So,
0: yeah, thanks a lot. I have to say, I really enjoyed your book. It was, um, you know, at first it was like, ah, oh, this sounds almost too simple to be real. And then as I was getting into it, I thought, well, you know, this, the paradigm shift doesn't have to be super complicated and really this alignment that you talk about, um, aligning economic policy market policy basically with human goodness um i think it makes a lot of sense i mean what are we doing right now actually uh that we've gone so far away from this kind of basic notion that we should all be working towards at least you know some kind of potential of, of human wisdom that you describe in the book what do you think's going on currently that's preventing us from making that connection
1: well you know it is a complex set of factors but uh you know uh all economic reforms uh, still basically reside within the paradigm of debt only and it's the indirectness of monetary policy what uh, the two policies that I talk about the universal dividend and this uh, uh, the discount to uh, to uh prices at the point of sale okay within and throughout the entire economic process uh that it eliminates the direct the indirectness rather of all current thinking about monetary policy and uh and like that uh you know if if we can maybe talk about you know the specific operation of that that discount policy and how, you know, how that would actually work, uh, you know, that, that might help. I mean, for instance, uh, you know, if, if you tie monetary policy directly to the point of sale, which is when a, when a sale takes place, it is always the summing of total costs and prices for that particular item. And so, and considering that, uh, you know, both the pricing system and the money system are both digital, in other words, $10 of money will eliminate $10 of balance on a loan, and $10 uh, of money will liquidate $10 in prices, okay? So if you take this discount policy, and you tie it directly, not just as social creditors did, which is all well, fine and good, at the very end of the economic process at retail sale. That's that's good. That's a, a further directness of policy. But my innovation of social credit policy is to take that discount policy and put it at the point of sale for every product from... Take an ore out of the ground to transport to production to retail sale that's simplifying the process but if you take that policy and you put it at the prices that enterprises charge themselves all the way through that process into retail sale and so mm-hmm. so that what you'd be doing with a let's just for for simplicity say say, Take a 50% discount on every price, okay, from one enterprise to another, okay, and you put a 50% discount on that so that they could sell their uh, product at virtually 50% less than what they currently are, okay? And then... uh, part of the discount is that it's it's reciprocal. In other words, the, the enterprise gives the discount to their customer and then a monetary authority, and you could mandate the Federal Reserve to do this, or, mm-hmm. you know, better, in my mind, would be a third kind of arm's length monetary authority that is, you know, away from the influence of politics and money, so to speak, uh, would also... Uh, take this, you know, what they would do is after the enterprise gives the discount and, you know, everybody's got their books in an enterprise. So they show that a sale is actually taken place at the discount. And then this monetary authority is mandated to rebate back to the enterprise that discount so that they can be whole on their overheads and their profit margins.
0: Right. Well, let's talk about just the the general system before we get too deep into the discount so people can understand why that's necessary. I mean, what you're basically talking about with this universal dividend is what people are now starting to talk about as the universal basic income, right? So you're talking about everybody getting, I think in the book you were talking about $1,500 a month, starting out with giving everybody across the board $100,000 essentially to pay off their debts. And then fifteen hundred dollars a month as a basic income that everybody has so that we get away from from this whole like debt based system that's based on scarcity Um, and before we even get into that though I wanted you to to touch on why in this current system you talk about how cost accounting the current system Mm -hmm. uh, ends up requiring that there is a scarcity of currency in the market because this is something that I um, with my interviews with Ellen Brown and looking into public banking. And I realized that we have a scarcity uh, of currency in the current market, which is why everybody has to get into debt, this debt based system. They don't pay us enough money to pay off production. So we're constantly competing. There's not enough money out there. There's not enough money out there. The money's created out of debt. And then you're getting a certain salary, but the salary's not covering the cost of the overall cost of production, uh, and all the stuff that's getting produced, and and then you take out loans to make up for the difference so you can buy all the stuff that's out there but then the money is not even created to pay the interest so we're all in this situation where we're competing with each other to buy the stuff that we need and to pay the interest back on the loans that we have to get because there's not enough money in the system and it's just this never-ending cycle so will you go into describing that and how cost accounting is another way of you know uh, maintaining the scarcity of currency out there right now
1: right well uh you know cost accounting uh if, if you look at it this way uh the okay, the total uh individual incomes including dividends and salaries to the owner etc uh is you know can be ideally, and it's it's never that way because, you know, Keynes and, and other people recognize that, uh, you know, saving and profit actually are costs to the system macroeconomically. So that mm-hmm. creates a gap in, in and of itself. But uh, cost accounting, again, sh- will show that the total that is paid out to individuals is only a subset of total costs. Because you have uh, sunken costs that in the, the temporal universe are inevitable, like depreciation, you know, uh, means of production breaks down or becomes obsolescent. And you have to keep replacing that. And, uh, you know, the, some people say, "Oh well, you know, you, you have depreciation allowances for businesses." Well, yes, you do, but a, a depreciation allowance is not a forgiveness of costs. It's just a stay of execution of them because, you know, eventually, if you don't charge that extra for the depreciation costs, then when your or when your means of production breaks down or whatever, and you don't have the money. To you know, replace it, you're in big trouble. Right. So you know, it's it's if you pay uh, very close attention again to the fact, it, it goes back to uh, C. H. Douglas and social credit. If you're if you're aware of that, that... yeah, please uh, please describe that history to uh, my
0: listeners here because that's something I didn't I, I was even un, uh, I was unfamiliar with C. H. Douglas's work until you brought it up and I looked into it. And I thought wow because this is. the the foundation of what's now called it's like, it seems like this universal basic income idea just showed up last year in the last couple of years and people are starting to talk about it. But it's actually been this movement that's been going on for uh, almost a hundred years now. So give us some of that history, please.
1: Well, you know, so uh, uh, C.H. Douglas proposed uh, his social credit theory uh, back before world war two. In fact, shortly after uh, world war one. And, uh, you know, he, what he eventually posited was this, what's called the A plus B theorem, which is that A, you know, will not pay for B, you know, in costs. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it, it, that's essentially what, you know, his whole cost accounting and, and calculus calculations were. Uh, so, uh, Douglas was, a you know, a contemporary of Keynes and... Uh, testified before uh, a lot of different Canadian and uh, British commissions during the, you know, uh, the Great Depression, and uh, you know he again he was a contemporary of Keynes, uh, and you know Keynes was you know was Keynesianism in my opinion was you know it was definitely an improvement. Over uh, what you know what they had, it's, it was kind of the birth of macroeconomics itself. But uh, Keynes again did not go deep deeply enough, go as deep in his policies as uh, Douglas did. And mm-hmm. uh, there are a couple of quotes which I can't I can't give you now, but in uh, uh, Keynes's magnum opus, uh, that you know he essentially said the exact same that what uh, Douglas said, okay? That, you know, you you can always pay something, but in paying it, you know, the costs still exceed what you're paying. And so what it it, uh, compels, as you uh, kind of mentioned in the question, is that it compels continuous borrowing in order to keep the macro system functioning but, you know, if you borrow, continue borrowing enough, even at 0% interest, you're still going to run into what we're facing now, which is, again, what uh, uh, Steve Keen talks about, which is debt deflation. In other words, if your income is or $1,000 and your debt service and food, etc., cetera, is $1,500 a month, you know, you got trouble. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, that's why, you know, an additional, a, a gift, which is costless, is the solution to that systemic problem because it doesn't add a cost and it provides, you know, uh, it fills the gap between right increasingly been, you know, debt well the other thing and and just to
0: simplify this enough for everybody to kind of get it is that what you're saying is that you know in terms of what companies pay out if you just across the board look at what companies pay out in terms of wages salaries and dividends and then you look at what they're producing what they're paying out is not enough money to buy all the stuff that they're producing so there's there's just not enough money in the system to be able to actually pay for all the stuff that's getting produced Plus, as you were talking about, plus then, um, you know, the overhead, the other costs of business besides just the wages and the salaries that are out there. So um, there's just basically not enough money out there to allow the economy to, to continue to grow without giving this huge chunk of debt service to the banking system right now. So you're proposing... And the idea behind this universal basic income to make up the difference and what you call the universal dividend is just to give people enough money to make up that difference every month. Not only does this give everybody, you know, enough to get by, (laughs) which is nice so that we don't have to worry about where we're going to go to eat or, you know, at least we can afford some food and a place to stay. Um, But then it frees up the economy um, so that. I, well, I mean, one of the things that you get into even is talking about money more as a vote. Instead of everybody scrambling around to try, just to try to figure out how to make it, we have this system that's based on abundance where money is more like voting on what you think, how you think our society should go forward. You know, here's the technologies that we prefer. Um, getting away from this competitive model and starting to develop a, a, an abundant model, which can...
1: Well, go ahead. Yeah, which, right, which uh, C.H. Douglas uh, referred to it as putting, uh, changing the power from, you know, the elite, the banking uh, 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 business model and the corporate business model, taking the power that they hold and with the dividend, placing the choice in the many hands of individuals. In other words, the individuals have that voting with have that power with their money vote that's exactly what he said
0: yeah i mean that's just the whole thing here i mean you talk in your book a lot about you know the difference between slavery and freedom basically and the bankers have this system set up so that we're all working for them i mean this is a slave system Um, And imagine what humanity would be like, you know, if it was liberated and we could actually make choices for ourselves and have an economy based on a a free society.
1: Precisely. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the experiment with Homo economicus is it's not only failing, it's very restrictive, you know, if if, uh, with abundance and leisure and a little guidance uh, from the helping professions, the clergy, and maybe business, uh, I mean, uh, government uh, uh, public service announcements, you could make people and guide people to help them be more, uh, have have their own self-chosen goals, as opposed to having so much of your time and energy taken up in economics and finding economic security. So, you know, what kind of a society could we have if you had the leisure time and the monetary resources to pursue those things, you know. And in, mm-hmm. in, in my way of thinking, you know, it would be such, you know, the arts and uh, other things like that, other areas like that, a community, uh, uh, family time, things like that would be uh, greatly enhanced.
0: Well, it's funny because I hear a lot of people right now uh, really being concerned about as technology improves, we're all just going to lose our jobs to the robots and then we're all going to be like living in poverty because we don't have any jobs anymore and the robots are going to be doing all the work when it seems to me like it should be more like what you're talking about. Well, as the robots are doing the work, we have more leisure time to produce art and culture and the other things that human beings should be able to do um, if we're not plugged into this. This scarcity system, you know, if we're just given enough currency to make the job, you know, make to be the oil in the machine that makes humanity function.
1: Yep, I completely agree. And, you know, it's uh, it's anxiety and fear about change. And, you know, that would be a good change. But again, with with the help of government, with the help of the, you know, the the helping professions, et cetera, I am sure. You know, that, I mean, in the first place, you know, 90% of us, uh, even under an austere system, managed to stay out of the slammer, you know?
0: <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know,
1: I mean, if you had a, a, an abundant system instead of an austere and onerous one, how much, you know, more good could come from that, you know? Especially if steered in positive and constructive directions.
0: Well, what do you say when people just you know come back at you with, uh, well, why would anybody work? You know, if you're given this money and you don't need to, why would you bother to work?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean the 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 answer to that is, you know, number one, uh, with this kind of a system, there would things take place where we could uh, produce so much more without, you know, even with less employment, but you know, the, the fact is that if you have abundance, a lot more money available, you're going to have a whole lot more employment than you do without it, number one. So that tend to mm-hmm. kind of slow that process. And then, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't look, uh, there's nothing wrong with employment. I'm not against that, of course, either. Uh, but, you know, what if you had, you just decided to redefine the idea of full-time work as 20 hours a week. You know, I mean, that way you right. immediately reduce the, the unemployment rate uh, as deceptive as that actually is uh, to half of what it is. And, you know, uh, you, you know, you, you're not everybody's going to quit work because people do find purpose in their work and the mm-hmm. and, uh, what uh policies of social credit and extended in wisdomics graysonomics is not out to destroy uh employment uh at all uh i think it will increase uh i just think that you know what uh you know the effects of the policies will be so beneficial socially and psychologically that you know uh it's, uh, it, it should allay any fears that, you know, everybody is going to quit working. Uh, not everybody is going to quit working because, you know, people, number one, $1,500 a month, that's a nice little sum. And if you have two, uh, the head of a household, you know, two people, uh, and so you got $3,000 a month coming in, you know, whether you do a lick or not. Well, that's an okay lifestyle, but, you know. Right. Requisitive, you know. And uh, so why not work 20 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week? And you end up making three times more than what you made uh, before the, you know, the, the integration of the dividend and employment. And uh, hey, it sounds good to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think something odd is going on right now. And, and I mean, statistics back this up, that productivity increases have not been. If, if, if I can say this, trickling down to the worker. <laughs> and so, I mean, we have this thing now called the Internet, which has made humanity, you know, how, how much more efficient. And yet I look around and people are working harder for less than they ever have before. And, you know, that's the interesting thing. I mean, the technology is certainly there to make humanity efficient enough that we could be working 20 hour work weeks doing what we love, not scrambling around for food, you know, food and for rent but doing something that we truly enjoy just following our passions working 20 hours a week and being able to make it happen if we had this financial system i think that would just make the currency available to to grease the wheels of the machine so i mean you know it's interesting um the second issue and this is the issue that i um often had with the universal basic income but now that's where you you get into the idea of discounting prices is that a universal basic income or this kind of universal dividend would just cause inflation in the system, that everybody just would start to charge more for what they have because everybody's getting free money. And so, um, you know, it would, it would negate the benefits of the extra cash that you were being given. Um, but that's where you get into this whole idea of, of the discount price. So can you explain that now that we've got a little backstory for everybody, how that would work?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you would have to have certain rules, you know, to the policies also. In other words, uh, well, you know, for instance, I mean, uh, if it looked like a discount and dividend policies were going to be implemented, you know, businesses could all of a sudden start jacking their prices up so that, you know, uh, they're a whole lot higher than what they would, you know, normally make a a reasonable profit on and, you know, but what you could do is, like, say, okay, uh, you have to, your prices have to begin at the point before you started, you know, jacking those prices up before in anticipation of this, these two policies going into effect. That plus... Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there is enough competitiveness between businesses where you couldn't just, you know, individually jack your prices up a whole lot without having to worry about losing market share. And uh, that plus, you know, the thing that that is, in my opinion, so good about the the integration of both the, the dividend and the discount policy is that, you know, if you implemented a 50% discount on all those prices and on prices that individuals paid for consumer products at retail, you know, it's an offer to businesses and retail, the, the model of retail that they really cannot refuse because if you don't, if you don't participate in the program honestly, then... You don't. You have to get your full price, but you can't discount your price down to the to half of what it was. Okay, so you're going to one of the reasons why you know uh, I said that we should again uh, the discount should go right directly to the point of sale throughout the, the economy is because if you only did it at retail sale, then you would leave open the possibility without correction. Of every business model before retail, which is the end of the economic process, jacking up their prices, and there would be no way for, to, to actually combat that uh, unless you gave them the discount also, and then again, they they really kind of have to participate in this or else you know their competition is going to participate in it, and they're consequently going to be able to sell at 50% less than what You can, because you don't get, you don't give the discount. You don't get any rebate.
0: Yeah. I mean, this system is still uh, compatible essentially with free market economics. It's just about bringing in enough currency to really, it's like I, I, I keep coming up with this metaphor of greasing the machine. Like there's just not enough grease in the machine to make it run as smoothly as it should be. And so if you inject more grease into the machine, then look at what we can have, you know, a whole system based on abundance and not based on scarcity. So the only people that really lose are the bankers, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, but you know, the the truth is, I mean, uh, let me look and see if I can find that one little example. Uh, well, you know, for instance, if, uh, a home builder, you know, their normal price is $200,000 for a home, but with the discount, they can offer it to the customer for one hundred thousand dollars. Okay? Mm-hmm. All right. And then if you even included the banks in that discount program, and you know, they're willing to give you a loan, okay, normally for a thousand, but they're gonna discount it to you for fifty thousand dollars, and yet they get $50,000 rebated back to them so they they can still make a profit, it, it, it you know, you can actually include finance in this, but they have to participate by the rules, of course, too. Uh, right. You know, so it's all good for the consumer. And eventually, again, uh, you, you're, what you're creating, as, as you said, is an actual money economy as opposed to an only debt economy economy. That's the paradigm. Money versus debt or, or gifting versus debt. And if you create enough gifting in the economy and still control inflation with the, the discount policy, what you do is you build up everybody's you know, capabilities to save without, inclu- without creating inflation so that The systemic and individual need to borrow that market is greatly reduced. Right. So you know it's it all kind of it all those two policies together those specific policies of a relatively abundant dividend and a a discount to uh, at the point of retail at the point of sale throughout the economy are what will you know it'll it's it changes. All of the complexity, again, of monetary policies carried out by central banks and governments, etc., and makes and simplifies it as you know an, ex- an exchange, and uh, you know, scare. I mean, it reduces costs and prices greatly, but it vastly increases the individual's abundant monetary stature.
0: Right. Right. Well, so let's get into, I mean, because a lot of what you're talking about is what would happen then after we had uh, this kind of policy in place. I mean, what happens to humanity in a situation where they have abundance and they're not existing in scarcity? I mean, just the benefits to humanity in terms of mental health alone is pretty huge. (laughs) I mean, you can imagine there's going to be less mental health issues and then a lot less crime as well because people aren't going to be living in poverty or be living paycheck to paycheck or be so concerned about how they're going to make it through the next month or the next couple of months. Um, So that right there is a huge benefit. But then uh, you get into talking about what you call the monetary economic sapient synthesis theory, which is starting to you know, get humanity on the right track where we're starting to um, synthesize our innate capability of human wisdom with public policy and moving forward uh, on a on a better path, you know, instead of this path. Gosh, I mean, I, you know, I even start to think about it like right now. What are we doing? Everybody's just scraping by. We don't even have time to think about what it means to be a wise or what we want you know, Native Americans talk about the seventh generation how we're talking about what's going on next month, not what's happening at seven generations from now, because we just don't have time. You know, we're too busy putting food on the table right now. So can you get into that a bit?
1: Well, you know, as, as the saying goes, the Martians must be laughing.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: uh, I mean, yeah, it's uh, that that uh, uh, SST I believe that was in the uh, the original book there, mm. uh, you know, I really like that also. I, I, I changed that, you know, to uh, Wisdomics and graceonomics, But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you know, it's my idea that, you know, it's it's not a coincidence to me that the concept behind gifting, which is the new monetary paradigm, and uh, of the experience that every wisdom tradition points at, whether you call it grace or satori, kensho, samadhi, whatever. That experience that is pointed at by the major wisdom traditions, okay, is, you know, the experience of grace, which is a dynamic present-time Experience where you've integrated. You're integrating continuously in present time, and so you know. I, I, you know, I talk about economics, but you know, my thing also is about this monetary, economic, spiritual synthesis theory, because again, grace is what's behind gifting, and grace, as in graciousness, you know, you and you can. You know, I know in the West, you know, that grace, it's, it's associated with Christianity. I, I Everybody can think exactly as they so please. But, you know, I'm not using it in a, in a, a uh, you know, a sectarian or specific Christian sense. I'm talking about it, you know, as that, it, that experience that all wisdom Christians are point, pointing at. But anyway, the gifting is an aspect of grace. And grace is that's outside the circle of economics it's outside of the circle of philosophy and it's into spirituality so grace the concept of grace if you really contemplate it long enough uh, really begins to enlighten you about you know how things could be uh, uh, temporally and within yourself so that's uh, that's why I originally called it Monetary Economic Spiritual Synthesis, synthesis Theory, uh, yeah. which I'm fine with, too. But, again, in, in the economic book, I was, you know, I'm, I'm calling it gifting. Because sometimes, you know, people, they don't see how everything, basically, can be integrated. You know, mental levels or, you know, from, you know, uh, both mentally and temporally, things can be integrated well
0: you know we're starting to get into some really interesting concepts here i've been dabbling myself in like that there are basically two different kinds of consciousness and the way that i've been describing it just to myself lately is that there's the consciousness of empire essentially which is the one that we i think most of us have been indoctrinated into Um, at this point where you're you know you're thrown into this situation where there's a hierarchy Um, most of us are towards the bottom of the hierarchy and we're all kind of scrambling around in this situation of debt slavery where we just have to work for those that are higher up in the hierarchy and we don't really have time to think about things like wisdom and grace and uh, uh, you know integrating uh, holistic, integrative consciousness and things like that. But once we shift our paradigm into this, what you're describing as as these wisdom traditions. So can you describe, you know, some ex- give some examples of some wisdom traditions uh, and what that means to you, and then maybe uh, expand on this idea of gifting as well? Because I know, you know, gifting is actually becoming quite popular from an anthropological point of view because people are looking at these these pre-empire cultures if you will or these in more indigenous cultures um that used to because they did feel abundance they their economies were based on this gifting concept so um so so try to talk a little bit then about the wisdom traditions and the gifting that is associated with that
1: well okay I, I, was was it the Iroquois or what was it uh, the indigenous uh, that the gifting was such an integral part of their their system Uh, I forget I know that there are some American Indian traditions like that but uh,
0: yeah I I think it was pretty ubiquitous I mean I think it was just a big part of of indigenous cultures that this was um, their way of of trading basically they didn't because they didn't think in terms of scarcity it was just you know you you always had an abundance so you gave and you got and and it was just a cultural thing
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, so you yeah, know, I'm I'm not as well schooled on that as I probably should be, but you know, that's true. And so far as uh, again, you know, the the spiritual uh, wisdom tradition tie-in, uh, you know, it's it's largely if you if you do understand that, you know, when uh, Christians talk about you know God's grace falling upon them. Well, what if that's actually just your consciousness coming completely into present time and and being totally integrated with space and time and Mm -hmm. in whatever you're experiencing around you? That to me is like, to me, what that experience naturally actually is. Uh, You have traditions like the Zen Buddhist uh, tradition where, you know, uh, they're called wall gazers. One, one of their disciplines is to sit and simply look at present time, not only uh, to develop the discipline their mental discipline on present time, but, and I've had this experience, uh, mm-hmm. if you simply sit and look, for instance, you know, the, the experience, one of the experiences I had was I sat down with a piece of yellow ledger paper, and I looked around me. And this was in a little guard shack. I was like doing the the uh, midnight shift, the graveyard shift, uh, as a security guard at a campground. And in this little guard shack, I made a little hash mark for every experience, uh, everything object started with objects that I could see around me, and everything that was that I hadn't noticed before. And you keep doing that, you keep doing that, no matter what idea or thought comes to your mind, you just keep focusing on separate things and every time you do, you make a hash mark. Well, I got to like, uh, I forget the exact number, but I got to like 1300 hash marks of specific different things around me that normally you're not consciously aware of and also what you become aware of is the space around you is more real it's almost palpable okay mm-hmm. and you know you don't see anything differently quantitatively than it is in other words you don't you, I didn't see a dog with five legs that was green or something but you see it more vividly Right. And that's talked about in all the wisdom traditions that that is satori. You're, you know, wow, it's me, and I'm here experiencing things right now, and wow, are they ever different than my normal walking right. around <laughs> state of consciousness, you see. And, uh, I mean, that's, uh, again, it, it's, you know, uh, it, it applies philosophically, economics, but it also applies experientially to the individual, and the the concept behind economics is grace as in gifting, and the concept of spirituality is grace, the experience of Mm. the present moment, and, and how you maintain that.
0: Yeah. I mean, when our economic system is keeping us so stressed out all the time and so just functional, purely functional, uh, where we're working and we're basically working again for these people that are up farther up on the pyramid than we are. And we're spending all of our time struggling. um, Then we don't have the time to really even experience that that the moment as it is around us. And we're too stressed out to even be able to appreciate what's going on around us. So just I mean, in terms of the quality of life that we're given in the current economic system um, is just not nearly what it could be if we did have the spare time and that release from the anxiety that the rat race and the constant struggle is forcing all of us into so you know what do you see as trying to synthesize this this graceonomics into actual policy i mean how do how do we align like what is this synthesis between um, this kind of you know, this potential for human wisdom and then the translation into actual monetary policy? Or does the monetary policy come first and then humanity just simply has the spare time to be able to pursue its own, you know, its own wisdom in that way?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the implementing the policies, the economic policies and monetary policies would be a tremendous step towards enabling, you know, the, the further... Uh, Uh, philosophical and and spiritual synthesis. Uh, You know, uh, what was I going to say? You know, and uh, I I think, you know, one of the things that we need to get to is we, what I would refer to as Operation, you know, wisdom or Operation Grace, which would be Mm -hmm. a, mass social movement to that would would be communicated to large constituencies like students uh, basically any any individual that was willing to listen and for instance the small to medium-sized business community uh, showing them how these policies would tremendously benefit them it's 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 in their interests as opposed to, you know, being slavishly tied to the paradigm of debt, which finance as, you know, has been the problematic business model for the last 5,000 years. I'd say it's time we changed that, you know? Right. (laughs) And, uh, you know, if you could get a movement that would communicate the self-interest of small business uh, owners, small to medium sized business owners, students, others, that these policies would, would give them, then, you know, it, it's, that's how Gandhi did it. That's how MLK did it with a social movement. And mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, you could herd the entire political apparatus towards realizing that, you know, Hey, you know, we better latch onto these policies and implement them or, you know, these large constituencies are going to throw you out of office, you know that. Thing. Right. So. That. Yeah, I think.
0: Well, I think you talk about, um, and I, I've heard this number being thrown out before, but it really only takes ten percent of the population to be active in order to make these kinds of changes. Like it's a, it's actually quite amazing that that the active ten percent of the population really determines the way things are going. I mean, unfortunately, the active ten percent right now is, I think. Uh, helping to create this system that seems like it's—I mean, I just—I'm looking at the current system right now, and it actually blows me away. It's—it's it's like it's—it's it's corruption. It's not even h- hiding itself, really. I no. mean, it—it's it's corruption right in front of your face, and then you ask it, you know, well, why are you acting so corrupt? And oh no, we're not corrupt. And all, well, yeah, you—you <laughs> you know, it's like they're just pretending like they're not screwing everybody yeah. all the time. Yeah, it's well, you know,
1: that's another thing that. You know, I think if you look historically, that one of the signs that a paradigm change is necessary is that, Mm. there. number one, there are no solutions. Look at the Trump administration. They got majorities in both houses. They can't even implement their own agenda, okay, because everything is so confused and and nothing really resolves, okay? You have to go deeper uh, to the paradigm level okay to to actually make things work and uh, again uh you know things don't work things one thing can be construed as you know it's opposite you see that in uh, all the political thing going on now which you know i'm i am in no way you know uh I'm, I'm completely against Trump simply because, you know, he's kind of the antithesis of grac- uh, of graciousness. Well, right. <laughs> you know, uh, but, you know, in, in my mind, and, you know, this is another book I'm working on called The Cosmic Code, which mm-hmm. is just a formula, okay, that, and stated, the, the Cosmic Code of Wisdom is you integrate the truths and only the truths of apparently opposing perspectives, and that, that integration, that fundamental integration leads to a thirdness and greater oneness. That's what we really need, uh, you know, economically, politically, and otherwise, Uh, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm getting a little bit afraid that, you know, we're setting ourselves up, uh, that we're, we're, we're getting so contentious that, you know we're, we're going heading towards a disintegrative moment in our culture, and right. rather than have that happen, you need that fundamental integration which creates the, the third alternative. You know, well, this is a
0: great point. I mean, I, you know, as a, an observer of politics for the last 20 years, you can pretty much show that you know, people elect they elect all democrats and you know so the house and and the senate and the president they're all democrats and then they don't do what they said they were going to do and then you know eight years later they elect all republicans and then the republicans don't do what they said they were going to yeah. do and then they, and we're just going back and forth and the people are so sick of it um because it's completely dysfunctional i mean whatever the people want well, whatever the people want is definitely not getting reflected in the economic and the political process right now. I mean, whatever we can say about it, I think everyone can observe that, you know, the election system's not working. I even think that politicians get involved in the system. They may have some integrity, but they get in there and they can't do anything about it. Like the whole system itself is just ridiculously dysfunctional. And I I actually get the feeling that now most people are sitting around waiting for the whole thing to collapse. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's exactly what you're saying. It's we're 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 obviously headed towards a disintegrative situation where we could be thrown back into the Stone Age if we're not careful. If we don't figure out how to synthesize these opposing viewpoints like you're talking about. I mean, it's gosh, it, it is complicated, though. I mean, there's um. You talk about it a little bit in the book that I read that where there, you know, there's two points of view and everybody wants to fight about it all the time. And it's so easy. I think the system actually exploits this, Mm -hmm. this kind of natural tendency of human beings to want to get into this conflict Mm -hmm. when the paradigm shift is when you can integrate the two and you can come up with a third perspective. I mean, this is what the yin yang is all about, the Tai Chi symbol. Uh, so some, you know, with some wisdom traditions, they understand this and they can move beyond this kind of uh, this kind of slave system where everybody's scurrying around in this rat race. Um, but if we, you know, here in the West and especially in the United States, I think, I mean, we could be uh, a really powerful um, force for change in the way that the world functions. And instead, we're clinging to this post World War II mentality that really only benefits a few people on the top of the pyramid. And uh, the rest of us are just scurrying around, not knowing what's going, you know, waiting for the apocalypse to happen. So. Right.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, as the old saying goes, uh, the only way for evil to win is for good people to do nothing. And, uh, you know, if uh, there's I see, you know, particle of truth and untruth in both a a, uh, liberal and conservative political and economic perspective. That's why I think you should integrate only the truth. But uh, having said that, I look at guys like Steve Bannon, who, you know, is, he's, he's, he's a well-read person. He's intelligent, but he doesn't know what to do with all of these ideas. He just kind of smashes them all together. And he's an advocate of uh, a couple of guys who wrote the, this book, uh, The Fourth Turning, which, right. you know, which... On the one hand, it, you know, it, it is maybe historically accurate, but what, it, it's, what it's pointing at, in my opinion, is the fourth turning is actually the failure to bring about this fundamental thirdness by the integration of the truths and opposing aspects, or opposing perspectives. If you integrate that, then you get this thirdness, oneness, and you avoid all the chaos that Bannon, you know, thinks is going to save us. But, you know, the chaos, lots of times that's how revolutions get betrayed. That's how the powers that be that, you know, are above it all can still come back and control the system. You know, if you had a, if we blew all of our productive uh, means up, the, the finance would be happy to lend us the money to rebuild it,
0: you know. <laughs> right for
1: sure we we've got to find that third way first before we get to the fourth turn that's mm-hmm. what i'm saying yeah that makes a lot of sense uh, another
0: concept that you bring up in the book is just about this idea that reality trumps theory and that seems to be like something that people get so caught up in is thinking about their theories their economic theories my theory must be better than your theory and constantly fighting over it instead of just realizing that here we are on the ground just trying to get by. You know what can we do to make things better?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, and that is you even see that unfortunately in monetary reform movements, etc. Like you know, Steve Keen, Michael Hudson, MMT, uh, Ellen Brown with public banking. I'm mm-hmm. I'm for all of them actually, I, because I think they are aspects of the the, the whole solution. right? But again, you want to go, the, going to the point of the paradigm and then implementing mm-hmm. policies based on that paradigm is the final key to making it all work together, uh, in, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, uh, what was I going to say? I, you know, I, I don't want to impugn anybody because right. I see... You know, uh, but I, I just made a couple of posts on a an MMT blog and where they, you know, they're into the job guarantee, which I don't have a problem with, but mm-hmm. they're anti-UBI uh, or universal dividend. And all I say mm-hmm. is, that why not integrate both of them? And when right. I do that, then, you know, you get a lot of flack from people saying, oh, no, no. The, you know, universal dividend is a bunch of nonsense, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, unfortunately, opinions and ego gets too involved, you know, uh, in right. monetary reform, you know. so.
0: Well, you know, I've, I've actually thought, and I was going to bring this up with you, my, my ultimate solution is to just, I, and I think maybe this is the paradigm shift, at least for me, is to break down this notion that there's got to be one financial system. I mean, why don't we have multiple currencies, multiple concepts competing against each other. I think that could fill this void. I mean, the idea that we all have to work in the dollar. I mean, we're handing the monopoly of the currency over to the Federal Reserve and then they can exploit it for everything. You know, it's like why are we doing that? Why don't we have public banks for every every county and city government around and why don't we have other, you know, credit options with other currencies? um and why don't we have you know ubis or why don't we have you know one of the one of the big things that i've been trying to work towards with this show is just the idea of community rights that your community should figure out what works for you i mean why do we have to have this notion that the nation state or even the world economy has to be all interconnected with this one currency and this one financial system i mean i think that's the biggest thing that holds us back from really being able to, you know, just to come up with a better way. I mean, let's just, if we all, if we, if we kind of, you know, if we stopped thinking that there was one correct way and just started, you know, letting the mishmash happen and see what worked for everyone, then, uh, you know, I think we'd
1: come up with something better. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but you know, uh, the, the, the thing, you know, number one, the, the financial powers that be, you know, could easily disrupt, uh, you know, various aspects of a, of, a, of a a priori decentralized kind of situation, uh, which, you know, even with a paradigm change, we're going to have to have certain reasonably ethical uh, financial regulations. Like, you know, the government mm-hmm. w- could, is going to have to say, look, if uh, a couple of billionaires over here in China decide to do a naked short on our currency, you know, go ahead. But, you know, to us, we're going to consider that null and void. You know, that's that kind of thing. But uh, uh, and, and, you know, again, I have nothing against decentralization, but if you utilize the pricing system of commerce now, you know, mm-hmm. It's with those policies, you get more bang for your buck than if you're, you know, if you're distributing 5,000, you know, uh, whatever you call them in the, 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 uh, uh, I forget what they used to call it, liberty something or other uh, currencies from cities and, and, you know, in areas that those Mm. are obviously better than, you know, not having them. But again, if I think if you utilize the present system and tie it directly to pricing, the pricing system, to the point of sale, that you get better cooperation from all of the enterprises that are participating, you know, and that, uh, you know, it, there's, you know there there is a there are hierarchies in spirituality that you know for instance you know uh, you have uh, from bottom up you have data then you have oh uh, okay, let me let me think here you have data you have uh, Uh, okay, you have, you have data, and then you have uh, you know, knowing on a uh, on a uh, mind level, uh, mm-hmm. philosophical, and then you have knowledge, self-knowledge. So, right. And, and those are spiritual hierarchies of they're like modes of experience. So you know, uh, decentralization is is good on the one hand, and yet when uh, – probably my, my, my motto is always, when in doubt, integrate. So you could integrate mm-hmm. decentralization and uh, acknowledge spiritual hierarchies like, you know, uh, and apply them even to uh, economics again because – You know, the the, the point of sale is actually analogous to self-knowledge in that spiritual hierarchy because it is, number one, it's the purpose of the economic system is to sell your product, you know, and get it consumed. And the, 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 the purpose of the consumer is to get the consumption. And uh so what it does is it, it links uh putting those policies at point of sale is that is like the moment of Satori in spirituality mm-hmm. because it's in present time, each moment of a sale is like you coming fully into present time and that is the point and that's why the policy goes to that point to the point of sale the discount policy because again it's economically it's analogous to the point of present time for the individual interesting so yeah it makes
0: sense it's that that moment where you make a choice yes Yes. well we've got a few minutes left and um and this might be a, a little bit of a big Topic to introduce right now, but if you could just give us a few minutes on this concept of grace—the the notion of faith that you break down in the book into confidence, hope, love, and grace—then there's this kind of pathway that we can take to this this higher awareness level that we can apply to our economic thinking. Um, do you want to just try to describe that to us a little bit and help us? I think if we can finish on a on a deeper understanding of this concept of grace as it applies. Um, both economically and spiritually
1: might help to wrap it up for people. Right. Right. Well, okay. I mean, uh, faith, hope, and love. Okay. That's a Trinity. It's three mm-hmm. things, three experiences. Uh, and, and this plays in kind of to my, my other book, the cosmic code, where I, I told you about, uh, it's a, it's a Trinity, unity, oneness, wholeness, consciousness process that's the actual description of the concept Uh, but you've got faith hope and love and if you if you build faith as in confidence that can you know faith can be transcendental or it can be simply psychological Uh, Mm. so if you have if you combine confidence with confidence you're going to produce more hope because you know if you're not confident, you're just, you're, you know, you don't have hope. Right. So, it's, again, it's a process of those three things, faith, confidence, as in confidence, engenders hope. Hope engenders the future, so to speak, okay? You're looking more into the future or more in and or more into present time. And love, of course, is universally acknowledged as, uh, you know, the wisdom in every wisdom tradition is kind of the factor. And then, so faith, hope, and love integrated in that trinity unity actually results in grace, which to me the definition of grace is this. It's a verb. It's that process of having faith hope and love within you and then expressing it out here in the temporal universe mm-hmm. so grace is that spiritual concept and again grace an aspect of it as applied to the economic system as gifting is also that that integration that you know if you have confidence in the uh, in The economic system, because you've got money in your hand all the time, and that gives you hope, and you know you feel a whole lot better (laughs) about yourself and probably others also, which will, you know, if you work on it a little bit individually, will you know result in great more graciousness. You'll have more community, more you know. Things like that, all kinds of offshoots of and aspects of grace, which is Mm -hmm. love in action. That's that's my definition of grace. It's it's not transcendental. It's simply psychological and temporal.
0: Well, that's what I enjoyed. I think the most about uh, getting into your work over the last week, Steve, was just the way that you make these typically intangible concepts that people sort of think about as pie in the sky. Um, But then you apply them like you're talking about in this temporal world and applying them to economics, which is really on the ground. How do we get stuff done and saying, well, hey, you know, why don't we apply these ideas to how we get by on our day to day, in our day to day life. And, you know, it just clicked for me that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's a, it's a lot. I think, you know, as, as you were talking, I was realizing that uh, thinking a lot about the existential despair that so many people get caught up in. I think because there's this disconnect between these ideas of, of uh, you know, hope and love, faith, hope and love and acting graciously. Uh, that's not what people are doing when they're thinking about economics these days. They're thinking of, because of the scarcity, because of the debt slavery, they're in a constant state of of competition Um, and anxiety about where their next meal is going to come from, uh, if they're not, you know, towards the top of the hierarchy. And, uh, and so, you know, it tends to make people, uh, disassociate from these positive feelings and, uh, kind of exist in a situation where they're just, they've just kind of lost, lost that connection and they are really feeling, you know, like, what is the point of it all? Oh, I have to get up. I have to go to work. I have to pay my bills and I'm going to be doing this every day until the day that I die. And there's,
1: I mean, there's no hope, right? <laughs> it's honorous, it's you know, and, you know, yeah. unfortunately, you know, uh, I have, I am four square for science, but as I say, science like food, you know, is wonderful, beautiful, necessary, but, it resides entirely within the digestive tract of wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, i yeah, for it, sure. I mean, science is it's, it's virtually co-equal with wisdom. It's, it's just that science tends to uh, emphasize fragmentation of truth while wisdom combines it and integrates.
0: Yeah. If you can't integrate it all back together, then what's the point, right?
1: Right. <laughs> right. You know, and, and as you pointed out, you know, uh science, you know, I don't think consciously even has, you know, not, not negated, but, you know, it's, there's a bias in a, in a lot of scientific thinking against religion, which is kind of, on the one hand, is probably correct, but what they need to do is integrate with spirituality yeah i i agree a hundred percent so and and again the uh the paradigm is the deepest part okay component of any solution to a problem and i think that uh that concept of of uh, uh the concept behind the paradigm of economics is grace and it applies to economics and to spirituality and there's no need to have an unnecessary uh you know, bifurcation of those two factors, economics and spirituality.
0: Well, that's great, Steve. I really enjoy getting into your work, and I appreciate the conversation. Um, we're getting we're a little bit over an hour now, so we probably probably could go on talking all afternoon, but I think we should we should cut it off there. But um, do you want to tell people, you know, what you're working on now, and where people can go? What your website is, where people can go to find out more information, and maybe take a look at some of your work?
1: Well, yeah, there is my wisdomicsblog.com. You can go there and see, you know, for the last couple of years I've been posting there. Uh, You know, I don't, uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't have, uh, I'm working on the Wisdomics Graceonomics book and I'm simultaneously working on the Cosmic Code book. Uh, So, you know, uh, hopefully looking forward to you know, I'll probably end up self-publishing it, and maybe getting a you know a, a website for both of those. Uh, I'm also, you know, interested in uh, doing, you know, speaking to students, small to medium-sized business community, etc., about these economic policies, and uh, hopefully, you know, that picks up. Uh, I don't have a you know any place else to go for anybody to go if they're interested, but uh, you know once I do, maybe I'll, I'll get a website about you know creating this you know mass movement, social movement to help herd the you know the political apparatus towards these policies. So stay tuned, I guess. Yeah,
0: well, that sounds great. And I'll make sure and uh, put in the sto- in the show notes uh, how people can get in touch with you, at least at wisdomicsblog.com. Um, and I appreciate you coming on. I mean, I think that anything that we can do to continue this conversation, just to open people's minds to the possibilities that are out there, uh, especially when it comes to finance and economics, um, it's amazing how much human potential is held back by the current system right now. And I think the more that we can start to think outside the box, then the more... That we have this potential into the future to not disintegrate, but become more integrative, as you've described, uh, as we continue to try to make this paradigm shift happen. So I really appreciate your work. And I just want to take a couple of minutes here at the end to remind everyone you've been listening to The Shift. My name is Doug McKenty. I'm happy to be your host. If you like what you're listening to, please think about supporting us on Patreon, uh, becoming a patron. That's patreon.com backslash the If you want to find out more information, check out my Facebook page at The Shift with Doug McKenty. Contact me on Twitter to join the conversation at D. McKenty or check out my website. uh, And you can fill out the contact form there, too, if you want to get in touch with me at www.theshiftnow.com. All right. Thank you so much, Steve, for being on the program. Steve Hummel at uh, wisdomicsblog.com. And I, I really appreciate the conversation. Have a great day. Thanks.
1: I really appreciate it, too.
0: All right. Take care, Steve. Have a good one.